pray, and then we'll spend some time in the book of Romans. So let's, uh, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your grace that you've lavished upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. We just ask that as we look at this text, as we think about this concept that's found here in Romans 1, Father, that this wouldn't turn us into self-righteous people who think that we somehow achieved Christianity by our own merit or that we are somehow where we are now because we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But, Father, that we would look at this text and realize what you saved us from and how you rescued us from ourselves. And so, Father, I pray that our heart would be uh, grateful for our great salvation that is ours in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so very much for sending him. Thank you so very much for your work upon our hearts. We thank you in your love, in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, I don't know if you do this. I do this with my kids. I am way okay with forcing them to watch John Wayne movies. Uh, I'm okay with that. They don't like John Wayne movies as much as I like John Wayne movies, but that's okay. Eventually, they will learn to love John Wayne, the Duke, as I do. We, I'm starting with his greater ones. And then we're moving, and one of my favorite ones is the one of the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? Great, great movie. Love it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a great one. Uh, but, but there's a line in there at the end that's kind of, the, kind of an interesting line that's made. So you have this guy giving the story. I don't want to give away the story, but, but it's this guy talking about this, what, what really happened uh, and as he's talking to the newspaper guy, the newspaper guy takes, the, takes all of the notes that he had compiled while he's talking to this guy, and he throws it in the fire. And the guy goes, well, that's the truth. And the, the reporter said, in the West, when myth becomes fact, you print the myth. When the myth becomes fact, you print the myth. That's what he said. And I think that's probably true with a lot of what people read in newspapers, right? When the myth becomes fact, you just print the myth. Why, why confuse people with the truth? Why confuse people with reality when the myth does a lot more for you, right? This morning, we're going to look at Romans 1. We're going to look at this idea of man suppressing the truth of God and how it's because of man's suppression of the truth that there's the wrath of God, that God is thoroughly and deeply offended. The point of this is not so that we look down at the people who do suppress the truth around us. While there is something inside of us that when we look at their behavior, of course, if we love righteousness and we love what is good, there is a disgust of the behavior around us. But something like this should cause us to go, man, this is who I once was. When we read Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3, Paul's argument is this is what God saved you from. He saved you from this. His point is, you were not born with a knowledge of God, a saving knowledge of God. It's not like we're all born Christian, and then we just mess it up and we need to be brought back. It's we are born sinful, 
right? We are born depraved, and it is by God's graciousness that we're saved. But the question is, he's got to answer a couple questions. He's got to answer some of the questions of society that we see around us. There's a couple things and a couple questions that we may have about certain things. And Paul's going to address those here in Romans 1. And one of the things that we're going to see in this text is this, this basic thing that, that man knows about God from creation. And it's this basic thing that he suppresses. It's not saving knowledge that he suppresses, but it is a knowledge that he does suppress. And the point is, is that at one time, we too used to do this. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, then you are doing this. And if you do believe in Jesus Christ, at one time you did do this, you were suppressing the truth. And so there's this really interesting position, this really interesting uh, juxtaposition in this text, as it were, of this stuff that we did know, but the stuff we really didn't know, right? The stuff that we did know, but we acted incredibly disrespectful. The stuff that we did know and the false worship of man as he suppresses the truth. And that's what I want to show you, these three things, right? So in verse 19 through 20, we knew, but we didn't truly understand, right? We know, but there's a lot of stuff we didn't know. In verse 21, we're going to see, we knew, but we were disrespectful, completely and totally, utterly offensive to God. And when you see it, You'll see how offensive we were. And then in 22 through 23, we knew, but we engaged in some pretty rank worship, right? We used to, all of us in this room. So let's look at this. Go with me to Romans 1. I'm going to read in verse 18 to get the sense, but we're really going to be focusing on verse 19 and all the way to 23. So notice Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember last week we talked about this. This is the heading of Paul's argument for the next couple chapters. And the next couple chapters are really arguing this, that the, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God and it saves us. And the immediate question that is asked is, saves us from what? What are we saved from? And then the question is, what are we then saved to? He's got to answer that, right? In describing the gospel, he's got to answer that. And so he starts off with revealing the righteousness of God and showing the need and the universal need. And this is the universal need. That God is offended. The holy, righteous God is offended. And, and his, his wrath is revealed. And notice it's against all kinds of godless and wicked behavior of men. Right? So here, here's God as he's looking and his wrath is being demonstrated as he's being offended by the sinfulness of mankind. And this is, this is what we do. This is what we did. And, and this is all those who are not in Christ. This is what they continually do who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you get the sense that it's a willful decision to suppress the truth. It's not an intellectual decision that these people come to. This is a willful. Their unrighteousness is the driver, the engine that is pushing down this truth. So Paul's going to explain this. 
We could say in Romans 1, he demonstrates the suppression of the truth in societies that don't have the Bible as their base, right? Chapter 2, we could argue, it's the suppression of the truth in societies that do have the Bible as their base. So one seems to go to the Gentiles, right? The other one's to the Jews. And both of them are suppressing the truth. And it's a little bit different, but they both are. And then for the then concludes in chapter 3, there is no one good, there is no one righteous, there is no one who seeks after God, for the wages of sin is death, right? That's what he comes to. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the conclusion he wants us to reach. Realizing that we weren't born right with God, we weren't born righteous, there's nothing about us that gives us a pass. There's no pass Right? You can't call ahead and order a pass to get into heaven. We're all born in the same condition. And it's only through the gospel that we can have a right relationship with God. And so Paul is now explaining this suppression and unrighteousness, this ungodliness, and this wrath that's revealed. So notice what he says. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Okay. So notice here that, that verse 19, he's explaining verse 18. And, and he's wanting to, to, for us to understand the suppression of the truth. What truth is being suppressed? Right. What, what is the unrighteous action of man? So, so what can be known about God maybe is a, that's an okay translation. Um, Kind of gives the idea that man can learn a lot about God just by looking at a tree. Now, you can learn some stuff about God by looking at a tree. It may be better understood that which is known of God. Meaning, it's suggesting that God has only allowed certain things to be seen in creation. And his special revelation and Jesus reveal other things. Okay? So there's this idea of there, there is things that can be known about God. Now, let us be very clear here what we mean by known. This does not mean that you can go outside and look at a tree, look at a blade of grass, look at a butterfly, look at a bird. Patty's right now at sea. She was taking pictures of penguins, right? No, she's, past that. she's past that point. You can't even look at a penguin and go, well, I now realize I'm a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Thanks, Mr. Penguin. We can't do that, right? But what Paul does mean here is, one, we can look at creation, and we'll get into this in a little bit later in the sermon. You can look at creation, and you not only know of the existence of God, but very important attributes of God. Now, you don't know him in the same sense that John talks about knowing God. It's two different words, two different concepts. That idea of knowing God and the way that John talks about and Paul talks about in other places is this close, intimate relationship that's based off of Jesus Christ. This knowing here is a, I, I can know things about Okay, I can know things about, and they're real things. It's not, I just know there's the guy upstairs. It's, I know certain attributes of his. 
So there are things that can be known. So man has, in creation and in himself, has enough information to know that there is a God and know certain attributes. And I believe that God has put this inside of man so that they would then seek him. We're going to find out they, that's problematic. <laughs> okay, that, that, there's a big problem there. But that doesn't mean that that wasn't the original intention. So there's things that can be known about God. And notice he says it is plain to them. Now, I don't want to sit here and, and just always uh, talk about how bad a translation is or, or use different words. But you got to understand, when you're translating from another language, sometimes there are statements that are, that are made that can be taken a couple different ways, right, as language works. Here, I think the ESV isn't the clearest. I think it's, for what is known about God is plain in them. So the first area in which God reveals some of his attributes is internally. There seems to be, according to this text, some intuitive general theism that is placed inside of every man, inside of every woman, inside of every boy and every girl. There seems to be this base intuitive knowledge of this fact. Okay, there are several passages that we could go to, and we'll look at these here in a second. But there's several passages we could go to that kind of, you could guys say, okay, that kind of alludes to there's something inside of man just naturally inside of him that he knows that there's a God. He knows that he is held accountable to this God. He knows that this God is morally good. He knows that this God is eternal. He knows that this God is the creator. He knows that he needs to be right with this God. There, there's something internally inside of man that, that knows that. Now, how does he know this? Well, he knows this because God has shown it to him. God, God has implanted it inside of him. Now, I'm not saying that every single human that's ever walked the face of the planet will, look, will automatically always say the same things that Paul says here of this is the stuff that they will know and they will all become these great philosophers and able to parse out all these attributes and everybody kind of understands that. I'm not saying that. We're going to see how this gets a little murky in a second. But know this. That there is something inside of every single human being that is born of this consciousness of a divine creator. And certain attributes of this divine creator because God revealed it to them. Which teaches us something really important. The only way we know something about God is because God is gracious enough to tell us. I know that we would like to think of ourselves as all being the smartest people, that we all passed all of our philosophy courses, and that we are without, without any problem, without any problem, without any error. I, I am not corruptible. My thinking is not corruptible. And, and in the perfect situation, I could reason myself to Jesus. That is not the case as de depicted here. Depicted here is the reason we know anything about God is because God has decided to let us know that about himself. 
So whatever is known about God intuitively is because God has graciously done this. But notice, this stuff is plain, right? He says, this stuff is evident. This stuff is clear because he's shown it to him. Now, what are those things, Paul, that they'll see? Notice in verse 20, these are the things that they'll see. For his invisible attributes. There are these invisible attributes. Of course, God is spirit. So he's speaking of these invisible attributes. Although it is kind of interesting that he just said it's plain and it's invisible and they'll be able to clearly see. That is all ironic, right? And we're all supposed to look at it and go, oh, huh, that's weird. Yeah, but it's the case, right? It's so obvious that I don't need somebody to explain it to me. It's so obvious when I look at something like a tree. Of course there has to be a creator, right? I look at, cre- I look at creatures as they, I, I, as they do the things that creatures do. And I go, of course there has to be a great designer to this. Okay? So, so, so there's these invisible attributes about him that are clearly seen, but they're not seen because they're invisible. They're, they're, because God himself is spirit. Because, because God himself uh, uh, demonstrates things that are unseeable. He demonstrates his holiness, his love, his goodness. Now, this is not the only place that Paul talks about the attributes of God in creation and their ability to communicate God's glory or his invisible attributes. Quickly go with me to Psalms 19, the 19th Psalm. So here's, here's how it reads. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glories of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So David looks at creation and goes, see, you look up, you look up there and it screams to his greatness, right? In the daytime and at the nighttime, right? Doesn't matter. Every time you look up, there's something that screams the greatness of God. And, and he says, and it pours out speech and it's revealing knowledge. There, there's this knowledge that is being revealed and it's, it's, it's being communicated. But then notice what he says. Verse 4. Or, or, I'm sorry, verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Well, how are they proclaiming without actual talking. Well, because the works themselves are a testament to it, right? And then notice what he says, but their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. In them, he has set the tent for the sun. And then he goes on and he talks about the sun, but you see how this is a universal thing. Universally, man sees this. Universally, they can look, they know intuitively and they can look in creation and they can see these invisible attributes. Now, be careful Because while they scream the glory of God, they also are easily missed. They're easily missed. The son of David wrote this. Go with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 8. By the way, we're going to be going back and forth between Psalm 19 and Ecclesiastes. So kind of try to mark your... Keep your fingers there, uh, as it were, because we're going to be going back and forth. But notice here in verse, in verse 17, here's, here's Solomon as he's 
thinking about all the works. And he says, then I saw all, all the work of God and that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much more may, man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So while it's clear and obvious and declaring, it also is true that even the wisest amongst us, apart from God's help and God's grace, doesn't necessarily see it and that it's easily missed. So when we go back to Romans, when Paul's talking about this, no doubt this is what he's thinking. He's thinking of this concept of the creation is, is clear and demonstrating the glory of God. And, and here Paul, instead of using the word glory of God, he uses invisible attributes. And then Paul then says, namely, I want to tell you what I'm, what I'm talking about. His eternal power and divine nature. Now, there's a lot of things to be said about each of these. First, I think the word eternal modifies both power and divine nature. So whatever is said, is, it's eternal. Now, we have already talked about this when we talked about the attributes of God earlier, when we talked about the righteousness of God, and we talked about the wrath of God. All attributes of God, every time he acts, he acts in the fullness of his being, right? So all of his attributes are happening at the same time. So, of course, every time we talk about an attribute, we have to modify it with eternal. God has never grown. He's never diminished. He is, he is before time. He is without time limits. He created time. Therefore, he has to be outside of time. By the way, that's a logical conclusion you one easily could, could make. If there is time and there's a creator, the creator had to create time. Therefore, he himself is not subject to the thing he created. If he is subject to the thing he creates, he no longer is God, right? That's kind of being that divine nature. So he's eternal. He's outside of time. And notice he talks about his eternal power. So anytime we talk about God's power, we, we use this big word omnipotence, right? all power. He's all powerful. What we mean is this, is that God can demonstrate the fullness of his power at all times, at all places, without any diminishing, right? He, he can fully exert his power at all places at all times. He's all power. With this comes all capability. He not only just has the power to do, he has the capability to do and the opportunity to do it, and the power to do it. So this speaks of his sovereignty. This speaks of his, of, of, of his strength. So there's this eternal strength. And then it's this eternal divine nature. Uh, it's kind of an interesting word, this divine nature. It easily could just be defined as whatever you think God is. That, that is really kind of the idea. Uh, one guy defined it as, a being to which nothing greater can be conceived when he was defining this term. I think that's a, that's a good general idea of what man knows. I don't think man knows everything about God by creation. I think he knows there is a God who is incredibly powerful and is God and is the creator and I must be accountable to him. Now, before we knew Jesus, guess what? We knew some of this stuff, right? 
We know some of this stuff. We know it, right? You could talk to people who don't know Jesus, and they know some of the stuff. They know God's the creator. They know about some of his attributes. They, they know, right? I was in a t-shirt shop in Seaside. There's a little t-shirt with a, with a little figurine of Jesus coming around the corner, peeking around the corner, and above it is the caption, I saw that. See, even in pop culture, there's people with this idea that, that there, there's a God that they're accountable to. That, that, that's understandable. It's understood. By the way, when we start talking about the suppression of truth, what truth are people suppressing? God's divine nature, his eternal power, and his accountability. They're suppressing that. They don't want to hear about that. So, we used to know this, but we really didn't know this, right? We knew it, but we didn't really know it, right? Notice how perceivable this is. He says, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. This phrase, clearly perceived, is a fantastic one because it's, it's much more than just they look up and they go, yep, I see it. This is somebody who's looking at something, they see it, they put it together, and they start making logical conclusions from this. That it is so obvious that you can make logical deductions based off of the basis that there is a God. That's what he's saying. Ecclesiastes, what's that phrase in Ecclesiastes? He's put eternity in their hearts. That's what Paul's talking about, this concept. Clearly seen. They're putting things together. They're seeing things. They have this perspective outside of themselves and outside of their world. These things are clearly perceived. Notice when they were clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the cosmos, of the world. So ever since day one of creation, until this moment, the heavens are screaming out the glory of God and the attributes of God. Man can clearly see them. Okay? We used to know this, right? Before we knew Jesus, we had a concept of this. We didn't really understand it. But these things are clearly seen in the world. You could see them. You could see them. You could see them in the cosmos. You could see them in the sky. You can see them in the smallest microscope. And then he says, in the things that have been made... So since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, God is revealing his, his, his attributes. So it's internal and it's something that's observed. And both of these are feeding each other. But then notice this statement. This is the next statement. Is, it lets us know Paul's not just sitting here talking about what man can know apart from Christ. I don't think he's concerned with that, to be honest with you. That's a weird thing to be really concerned about. What can somebody know without Jesus? Uh, as if this was like some sort of thought experiment. He's not concerned with that. He's concerned about the suppression of the truth. And this is why God's offended. Because notice the next statement. So they are without an excuse. They have no, they, they can't give a defense. As if, as if it was possible for them to give a defense. So, so the idea is the wrath of God is, is, is revealed against them. And it's almost as if somebody will says, well, what if somebody hasn't read the Bible? Are they still under the wrath of God, even if they haven't read the Bible? And Paul's argument is, it is so obvious that there's a God. So obvious that you're accountable to that God. So obvious that you should try to submit to that God. That you're without excuse, without a defense. 
Your sinfulness, there's no defense for your sinfulness and the suppression of the truth. You are held accountable for that. All people are accountable to that. To the people who have never heard the name of Jesus, to the people that have heard the name of Jesus every day of their life and still refuse to believe in him. They all are held accountable. No one has an excuse or a defense against the wrath of God. That's Paul's argument. So we knew, but we didn't know. We knew, but we didn't really understand. Now there's something else. Notice, we knew, but we were disrespectful. So this is where the suppression starts to happen, right? So we kind of know, but notice verse 21. For although they knew God, they knew. This doesn't mean that they knew God like we know God in this personal relationship. They know a lot of stuff about God. They knew these attributes. They knew his goodness. We could say, even though we knew God, we knew stuff about God, notice what happened. First thing that they start to do in this suppression of the truth They did not honor God as God. You see? You see you see what you see the offense? You see how offensive that is? Here's God clearly seen. We in our sinfulness said, nah, I don't have to worship him. Are you kidding? I could come up with something better. You see how disrespectful that is? Didn't honor him as God. This is, this is the wrath of God. This is us. Before Jesus, we did not honor God as God. We didn't. Now, you might have believed in God. You might have memorized Bible verses like I did. But little four-year-old little Caleb, he was suppressing the truth too. He didn't honor God as God. He, he didn't see God as God. He didn't. Now, granted, it wasn't the worst that possibly could have been done. I'm not suggesting that. But let us not gloss over this. At one time, we all were enemies of Jesus. At one time, we were all separated from Jesus. So no one can claim, well, I I didn't know, so there's no excuse. Or somebody can't say, well, I was good enough, right? I've always, I was born a Christian. I've always been a Christian. No, wrong. That's not the case. This passage proves it. It's not the case. Didn't honor him as God. God. It's amazing. So, So notice what else then happens. When you fail to worship this way and you act so disrespectful, you then, you then do this other thing. Nor give thanks to him. So, so they didn't honor him as God. And they weren't thankful for what he's done and what he's provided. So what are they questioning? What's the suppression? The suppression is this. The character of God and the works of God. That's what they're suppressing. That's what we suppressed. Who is God and what has he done for me lately? And we suppress what he really does. But then there's this, there's this other thing that has to happen. So it's almost as if the human mind has this vacuum, the way I see it. When, when you remove the most obvious facts, right, that there is a God, that there is somebody that we're held accountable to, and you remove that and you suppress reality, you have to fill that vacuum of reality. You have to explain reality somehow in order to not lose it. And so what ends up happening is you start 
thinking and you start doing this other stuff. So notice what happens. So there's the suppression of the truth and then there's the myth, right? When the myth makes sense and contradicts the facts, just keep on going with the myth. So notice the myth. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what do they start doing? Well, they start thinking. And they start thinking about stuff. We used to think about stuff. We used to try to put stuff together. It wasn't honoring to God. It wasn't thankful to God. It wasn't in light of God's revelation. And we just started thinking. We had ideas and thoughts. And we thought this is how it works. And this is how it fits together. And we have all these little things that, that we go, okay, this goes on top of this. And this goes on top of this. And this goes on top of this. And it's all corrupted. It's all crazy. It's all foolish. Because it doesn't start at the right place. And logically it then goes far, far, far away. We all did this. We all did. We all had crazy thoughts. We all were futile in our thinking. And notice what happens. Not only does our thoughts get crazy, but then their foolish hearts were darkened. To the point that they couldn't see the obvious. So it's this willful lying to oneself and the suppression of the truth. And as you willfully lie to yourself, you begin to believe the myth that you told yourself. And then when somebody then tells you about reality, you go, nah, that's not the way I think about it. It's not the way I see it. Well, they can't see. Their hearts are darkened. Now think of this. Think how disrespectful this is. Here's God who's made it so obvious, so blatantly obvious in them and to them. And they go, nope, I don't want you. I'm not going to thank you for what you've given. I'm going to come up with something else. And I'm going to, I'm going to do something great. I'm going to do something great. I'm going to think something else. And what does this lead to in the great suppression? Notice the next couple verses. We knew, but we engaged in false worship, right? We were disrespectful, but here's this false worship. Notice what happens in the mind of these people. They're claiming to be wise. Remember that passage in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 8, right? Even the wise man, even though he says he knows what's going on, he doesn't know what's going on. So these people in their great thinking go, look how wise we are. Look how smart we are. We can, we can get right with the creator through all of these various other means. Look how smart we are. Look how great we are, how wise we are. But, but what are they really? But they became fools, right? They're rejecting reality. So, so what makes them so foolish? In my opinion, this next verse is one of the saddest verses. It's one of the saddest verses because I think we all have done this. And I, and I think sometimes we don't realize how serious of a cosmic crime and treason this is. This next part where we engage in false worship, this is when I think back to my own life and I, and I see all this idolatry that I've had, I, I think of this text and just go, look at what you've done. What, what, are they, what, is, what did we do? What are they doing? Why, why is he so offended? How do they continue to suppress the truth? Verse 23, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for the image resembling mortal man. 
That exchanging here, by the way, is an exchanging of glory. That's, that's what he's talking about. It's not there's one thing and then, ah, well, it's the glory that's due God, the honor and thanks that is due him. This, this incredible, incredible glory, these incredible, incredible attributes that we see, we take that from him and then we say, I'm giving it to you. The honor that's due God, I'm now giving it to this. The gratefulness that's due God, I'm now giving it to this. All those attributes that I see, I'm now attributing it to this. You see? You see how offensive that is? If you don't know how offensive this is, just imagine this for a moment. Let's say you came up with a really good idea at work. It was the best idea. It's going to make the company a whole bunch of money. And let's say somebody came in and stole it and said, I did it. And then all of a sudden, everybody then gave that guy a promotion for your idea. How happy would you be? Not very happy. You want to know why I know people aren't very happy? Because I hear about it all the time when people go, they stole my idea. And they're thoroughly offended, as they should be thoroughly offended. Now, think of it in the, the grandest scale possible, that here is God who's made himself so obvious, is giving so much to mankind, and mankind just goes, yeah, all of that honor and gratefulness and attributes that I see, I'm going to give it to something that resembles a man. You now begin to understand the wrath of God. But this is where we all were. So, so, so they exchanged this. The, the glory of the immortal God. The, the, one, the one that doesn't have any end. And they give it to something that is temporal. Right? And it's an image resembling now, on the one hand, Paul no doubt is thinking of, idol of idols, right? Of statues, of whatever man thinks up to carve out of wood and then bow down and then worship it, saying, this thing that I made made me, right? Whatever that could be. When I was in India, every single town I drove into had this monkey god. He was the protector of the god Shiva, which you would assume... If Shiva was such a great god, he wouldn't need a protector. But he not has just a protector. He has a monkey god with a rattle. So, scary stuff. So here's this image. And these people are doing all this stuff to it. And they're thinking how wise this is. And, and all of the wisdom that you're gleaning from. And you just look at it going, no, 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 no. The very one that created the world, you are taking from him. And you're giving it to some monkey. That's offensive. There's something inside of me that happened when I was in India. It, I got angry. Not, not because somebody disagreed with me. But because I thought of this text. This stuff belongs to God. You can't steal it and give it to somebody else. That's, that's not okay. It's not okay. You might say, Caleb, that's not for you to be offended. But I'll say... A dog is allowed to bark at a stranger. I'm allowed to get offended at somebody stealing the glory of my God and giving it to a monkey. It's not okay. It's not okay. But, but we all did this. You've got to understand, we did this. Because notice how he words it. He doesn't necessarily say that he, it's to a statue. It's to an image resembling. Meaning it could be anything. It could be anything. We can worship anything. We worshiped anything you understand how offensive that is 
And what are the things? Oh, it's, you know, mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles, you know, the, those things. We knew, but we didn't really understand. We knew, oh, but we were so disrespectful. We knew, but we engaged in false worship, right? We were willing to worship anything. This text is not to beat us up. This text is not to be used as like Maxwell's hammer that we go around and smacking people in the head over and going, look how bad you are. This text is written to believers because it's supposed to cause us to think about people correctly and think about ourselves correctly so that when we then get later on in the book and there's this statement that we are now right with God on the basis of Jesus Christ, we go back and go, look at what he saved me from. He saved me from ignorance. He saved me from this disrespectful attitude and lifestyle. He saved me from this false worship. He now allows me to worship him, to present myself to him. I can now worship the creator and worship him in a way that he desires. This passage should light a fire inside of our souls that says, Thank you so much. The, the very thing that we didn't do, we should do. We should look at creation and go, you know who made this? God made this. We, we then can look at a tree. We can then look at my little dog, Lewis, and we can say, God made that. Look at the genius of God. Look at the wisdom of God. Look at the power of God. We, we, can, we can now then go to God and honor him as God. We can now thank him. And when we start thinking, we, we now are thinking correctly. And we no longer exchange the glory that belongs to God and giving it to a little monkey. We now let God keep the glory and glory and honor in him. This is what he saved us from and saved us to. So there should be a heart filled of gratitude, a heart filled of praise. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your son, Jesus. We just ask that as we continue on and as we uh, go throughout the week, that we would honor you as God, that we would thank you. We would have a heart filled of gratitude because you sent your son to come and die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and rose again on the third day. Father, help us with empathy towards our neighbors who might not know you. To realize that they are caught in this vicious trap of trying to suppress the truth while thinking really bad, futile, foolish thoughts. Father, help us have love towards them. Help us have empathy towards them. Help us say words of truth that are appropriate and loving and kind. And Father, we hope that many of the people in Astoria, Oregon, and Clatsop County would come to know you as their Savior, come to know your Son as their Savior, and that they would go from an idolater to a worshiper of the one true God. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your Son's name, amen. So as the musicians come